Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Hebrews chapter number 11. So that's Hebrews chapter 11, and just follow along as I read. I'll be reading verses 24 through 29. The Bible says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, assaying to do, were drowned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray now that you would, that you would speak through me, Father, and that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit, that you would speak through the three other men preaching this evening, that you would just speak to your people today. Father, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I'd like for us to examine a story that's pretty familiar to us, and it's the, the crossing of the Red Sea. And just for context, if you could please turn to Exodus chapter 14, and I'll just give a quick summary of the history. So Israel had been in captivity by the Egyptians for many number of years. They were enslaved. And then God called Moses, and Moses had run from Egypt. God called Moses back to Egypt to bring his people out of the land. So Moses approaches Pharaoh, and he tells Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh refuses, and the ten plagues sweep the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh finally acquiesces, and he lets the people of Israel go. So now, if we jump to Exodus chapter 14 and verse number 5, the Bible says, and it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? Now quickly, I just want to examine five principles that we can see from Israel's escape from Egypt. Now firstly, I want us to see that God provides for his people. Now if we back up to Exodus chapter 12, and if we look at verse number 35, the Bible says, And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels and silver, and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. So before Israel had left Egypt, God was working in the hearts of the Egyptians to give the people of Israel everything that they needed for their journey. Now, my point is simply this. God will provide what we need for us in our lives. And it may not come from the source which we expect. Now, the Israels were in captivity in Egypt, and yet the Egyptians were the ones that gave them the goods that they needed. God knows what we need, and he will provide it in ways that we will not expect. And simply, if we move forward, my next principle that we see is in Exodus chapter 13, verse number 20. The Bible says, And they took their journey from Succoth and encamped in Etham, in the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud 
to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, to go by day and night. And my point is this, God is always present to guide his people. Now the journey that the Israels took, by day and by night, there was always a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. And the Bible says, he took not away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night. Now God is always present in our lives, and he is always leading us. See, the Bible says he took not the pillar away. No matter what time of day it was, no matter how much time had passed, all they need to do was look towards the pillar to know which way they should go. And for us, God is always present in our lives guiding us. Should we need direction or should we feel scared or clueless, all we need to do is look to God as he is present in our lives to guide us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And next, I just want us to see if we move now to chapter 14, verse number 11. The Bible says, And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Now the, the Israelites struggled with where their focus was. Now my point is that we must look to God rather than on our own circumstances. The, Israels, the Israelites were focused on their circumstance. They were focused on the desperate situation in which they were in, in which they were at the border of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's Egyptians, his Egyptian army was coming and encompassing them to kill them. Now, if we look at verse number 12. Sorry, verse number 13. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. The Israelites were focused on their situation, and that led them to fear. Had they only focused on what God had told them, that he would fight for them, that would have given them strength. And that's what Moses had to remind the Israelites of, that if they simply look to God, God will give them strength and fight their battles. I simply have one more point. And if we look at verse number 15, the Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel, and that they go forward. But thou lift up thy rod, but lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry, on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Now my final point is simple obedience, rather than our own ability, will yield God's results. Now Moses' instruction from God was simply to lift out his hand over the sea, but then God adds something else. He says, stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it. That's Moses' instruction from God. Lift out thine hand and divide the sea. Now obviously we know Moses does not have the ability to divide the sea himself, but Moses simply had to obey God and lift out his hand, and God would be the one to do the dividing. 
All we need do is simply obey God's simple commands to us, and God will divide our seas, and God will fight our battles for us. We simply need to have faith in God. Uh, to turn, uh, please turn with me to uh, Romans 15. Uh, Romans 15. Now, uh, it's no surprise that these past two years have been a difficult past two years for like all, all of us. Uh, some of us have been struggling with personal reasons, spiritual reasons, and sometimes even our health. But um, when going through these trials, uh, there's always this sense of hopelessness that you may feel. Um, hopelessness that this trial may not end like anytime soon or that it could get worse. But there are, there are three things I want to share with you. Um, and with those three things are three verses. Um, and, uh, but before that, uh, I'd like to pray first. Um, our Heavenly Father, um, thank you for uh, giving us, uh, giving me the opportunity to share your word. I just pray that uh, this will be a blessing to someone out there. And uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So um, now going back to Romans 15, Romans 15, verse 13. Uh, the word of the Lord says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may, be ab that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, God is a God of many things. He's a God of love. He's a God of justice. He's a, he's a lot of things, but this verse mentions that he's a God of hope. Now, um, hope is, is what helps us get through our day. It helps us keep moving forward. And to put it simply, if you're lacking in hope, turn to the Lord because he's the God of hope and he's the hope of all hopes. Um, now point two is there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, turn to me to Romans 5, that's a few pages behind. Uh, Romans 5, verse 3 to 4. Um, and the word says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and in patience, experience, and experience, hope. Now, there's this very well-known saying that... Many of many many may have heard this verse, but or quote, but not have known the origins of it. This quote was popularized by President John Kennedy in the mid 1960s in reference to the conflict of uh, Vietnam. And the saying goes, "There is always a light at the end of the tunnel." Um, The um, tunnel, sorry, being in a tunnel can be tough. It can be, it can be a lot of things. It can, it's a tribulation that we all go through at one point through our, our lives. But working with patience uh, in, in the Lord gives us hope. And uh, in a song we all know, 
The light of the world is Jesus. Jesus is the light at the end of the tunnel. And um, point number three, uh, turn to me to Isaiah 40. It's uh, back in the Old Testament. Isaiah 40, verse 31. And the word says, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount upon the wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Um, as the verse says, when you're filled with hopelessness, don't turn to the world. Don't turn to worldly media or other worldly ways to uh, deal with stress, with life. Um, it may fill your hopelessness in the short term, but within the long term, it barely does anything. But wait upon the Lord. Because um, he's a Lord of hope. Um, and he's the, at, he's the light of the end of the tunnel. And um, thank you. Please turn your Bibles to Isaiah. And we'll be reading one verse. Chapter 29 and verse 13. And if you're there, just read along with me. Wherefore, the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Before I begin, I'm just going to start with a short prayer. Heavenly Father, I'd like to thank you for this day. I'd like to pray that you would bless this message and that you would speak through me. Praise on Christ's name. Amen. So we see in this verse <clears throat> that God has a problem with his people. We see here in verse 13 that God is speaking on what displeases and grieves his heart. What is it? Well, it is the hypocrisy of his people. Specifically here in this chapter, the city of Jerusalem. What is Jerusalem's hypocrisy? Well, the people of Jerusalem, they worshipped God, right? This seems pretty good, right? with their words, perhaps through song and prayer, just like we do. But the problem was, to them, it was merely a ritual. Perhaps they saw it as a traditional ritual that needed to be done, you know, something that has been passed down through generations to appease God's wrath toward them and to please other people around them. Before we go into it, what's the definition of a hypocrite? Well, a hypocrite, simply a, a pretender or an actor, someone who outwardly <coughs> excuse me, looks like and even believes themselves that they're, they're living for God, but truly, in their hearts, they aren't. Well, in this chapter, what's the big sign of hypocrisy that we see? Okay, let's look to the first verse of the chapter, chapter 29. The Bible says, Woe to Ariel! to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year. Let them kill sacrifices. Verse 2, Yet I will distress Ariel, 
and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. The big sign that we see in verse 1 and 2 is that Jerusalem was prideful. That's the big sign of hypocrisy. So we see in verse 1 and 2 that Ariel was used as a name for Jerusalem. And what it basically means is, uh, is Lion of God. That's what Ariel means. Or, you can also translate it as Altar for Burning. In the verse, in uh, verse 1, it also, Isaiah also mentions Ariel as the city where David dwelt. It seems from these two verses that Jerusalem saw itself as the Lion of God that pleased him with their sacrifices. And they even boasted about their heritage in David. Yet we know in the next verses, if you, can, if you continue reading, that that was not the case. God was not pleased with Jerusalem's outward worship because it did not reflect the inside. God actually allows Jerusalem's enemies to, um, to execute his judgment towards them. Now, what are some things that the modern hypocrite does? Well, first, the modern hypocrite may take pride in their own works. They may do ministry in the church. They may worship in the choir and in the congregation. They may give their tithes, give their missions, but in their hearts. They may be doing it out of obligation. They may do it for selfish motives. Perhaps the love they had for God in weeks, months, maybe years past, has grown cold. And in, in Revelations chapter 2, you don't, you don't have to turn there, we see, a, we see a similar situation with the church of Ephesus, right? They had the works, the, they had the labor, the patience, and they seemed to even hate sin as well, the right way. But what does Jesus say in verse 4? Jesus said, Nevertheless, I have someone against thee. Why? Because thou hast left thy first love. Number two, the modern hypocrite may stop at justification. Before, before uh, you ask what that means, let me explain. They may go the opposite direction from the hypocrite who took pride in his or her works. They may have a profession of faith, even get baptized, but their interest in knowing God, in knowing God more, has faded away. Or maybe it wasn't even there in the first place. This may show that this hypocrite is not even saved, for the fruit isn't even there. Matthew 7.17 says that a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Third thing, lastly, the modern hypocrite can preach one thing, but practice the opposite. I think this is something that we all can struggle with. They don't act upon their claimed convictions. In Romans, 2, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 21 to 22, it says, Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal. Dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Again, anyone can easily fall prey to this. I know because I've been like this hypocrite. 
They may teach something from God's Word on Sunday in junior church, but act completely different the next day. This hypocrite may exhort a fellow believer to share the gospel, but never bother to do it themselves. So we see from Isaiah 29 that God is what? Is displeased, right? He's displeased and hates in genuine and untruthful hypocrites. We learned the big sign of hypocrisy, which is pride. We also learned what a modern hypocrite does. Now, what does God want? What does he desire from every believer here today? Well, simply, he wants a relationship over religion. There's the classic saying, Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship. And it's a true statement. God is not looking for someone who sees themselves as, you know, an honest, good human being. He's not interested in empty rituals. He wants you. He wants your heart. That's why God sent his son, right? He sent his son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law which nobody else in history has done. And he himself became the propitiation for our sins through his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the gospel right there. God sent his son because we cannot go to him through our works. God sent his son so that he can be our mediator and we can have that relationship with God himself. And this truth still applies to Christians today, not only at the moment of salvation. God wants a relationship with you. He wants your heart and your affections. So, how do we change our hearts? How do we have a heart for God? In Colossians 3, we can find the answer. Verses 1 and 2 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on the things on the earth. One thing, we need to set our minds on Christ. Remind yourself that you are risen with Christ, that you, as a child of God, have eternal life through Jesus. Remind yourself of things above. Things above are what? They're eternal. Rewards and crowns we receive in heaven won't be taken away while the achievements and the wealth we have here will. Remind yourself that Jesus sits at the right hand of God interceding for each and every one of you and me. Remind yourself that Jesus loves you and that he died on a rugged cross to prove it. And we know from 1 John 4.19 that we love him because he first loved us. Setting our minds on Christ will rekindle our love for God, and help us to hate sin as we should. So, God is still seeking the hearts of his people, just like he did in the times of Isaiah. Because he's still the same God. He's still displeased with prideful hypocrites who think works can gain them favor with God. And finally, he's still seeking those who would want to have a relationship with him and who would give their hearts to him. Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21, and we will be starting in verse number 14. Now, before we begin, I'll give you a little bit of context for this passage. So, God, he has just answered Abraham's prayer, or 
his, his, uh, his promise to Abraham. Isaac has been born. And after that, Hagar's son, Ishmael, he mocks Isaac. And then Sarah, she says to Abraham, Abraham, we have got to remove Hagar and her son because the strife between them, uh, we, we, can't, we can't allow for that. And then we find, and then we begin in Genesis chapter 21 and verse 14. And Genesis chapter 21 and verse 14 says, And Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, and the child sent her away, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water was spent in the bottle, and she cast the child under one of the shrubs, and she went and sat down over against him a good way off, as it were a bowshot. For she said, Let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him, and lift up her voice, and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven, and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, hold him in thy hand, for I will make him a great nation. God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went, filled the bottle with water, and gave the lad to drink. So do you see what happened here? So Hagar, she woke up the next day, and it was going to be a bad day for her because, like I said before, she was going to have to depart from Abraham. So do you see what happened to Hagar? Before, the day before, she had everything. She had a position, uh, relatively speaking. She was still a bondwoman, but she didn't have to fear for anything. She didn't have to look for food because Abraham, he was a very wealthy man. So food was provided for her. She was secure in the position that she had. So life, relatively speaking, was very good for Hagar. But the next day that she was going to be sent away, things were not looking so good. If we start in verse 14, we can see in verse 14 it says, that Abraham, he arose early, he took a bread and a bottle of water. So all Hagar, all Hagar had when she was leaving was bread and a bottle of water. Do you see what happened to Hagar? She lost everything. She lost her position. She lost her security. She lost all of the benefits that came from working with Abraham, and she was sent to wander aimlessly. And we can see that in verse 14. In verse 14, it says she took uh, Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, and the child, and sent, and de she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. She didn't have a destination. All Hagar had to do was wander aimlessly. And eventually, she got to a point where her bread ran out, and her water ran out, and also her hope ran out. Everything, it was going wrong for Hagar. And we can see that when we come to verse 15. It says, And the water was spent in the bottle, and she cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat down over against him. You see, Hagar, she was in despair at this moment. Everything that could be going wrong was going wrong for her. And we come to verse 17, and it says, And God heard the voice of 
the lad. Now, this is a very interesting thing, because when we look at it, we say, okay, God heard the voice of the lad. The lad, it was Hagar's son. It doesn't say God heard the voice of Hagar. It says God heard the voice of the lad. That's Hagar's son. And just to make sure that we don't miss it, the Bible says it one more time. It says, and the angel came, or, and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. You see, God says it again, just to make sure we don't miss it. God, he didn't hear Hagar's voice because Hagar wasn't the one that was calling out to God. It was her son. Her son was the one that called out to God, and God heard the voice of the lad, and God came and comforted Hagar and her son. So, during this situation, we can see that Hagar had completely removed God out of the picture. All of her circumstances and everything that was going on and everything that was happening to her, it had encompassed her. The fear of the situation. She was going to die, and it wasn't in this moment that she called out to God and, and she asked God to help her. You see, the fear of her situation and everything that was going on around her, it completely consumed her, and she had completely gotten her eyes off of God. Now, we know the story. This is, the story is very similar to what happened to Peter. If we think all the way in the New Testament, what happened to Peter? Peter, he steps off the boat. He walks on the water. He's looking at Jesus, but then all of a sudden, his situation and everything that's going on around him, it completely consumes him, and he gets his eyes completely turned off of God. And that's exactly what happened to Hagar. You see, Hagar was completely blinded by her circumstances. Her circumstances were bad, but she allowed them to completely blind her from God. And when we come to verse 19, it says, and God opened her eyes. What did God open her eyes to? God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the bottle with water. You see, the answer to Hagar's immediate need was right in front of her the whole time. When Hagar was wondering, and she came to the edge of despair, all she needed, or what she needed, was right in front of her. But she couldn't see that, because... She allowed her circumstances to completely blind her from the provision that God wanted to provide for her. She was blind to it. She couldn't see it. And you see, now we can turn that to us, to myself, and to you as well. You see, sometimes we get to a point where we feel distressed. We don't know what to do. We don't know what the next step is. You see, but the answers that we need, they're right in front of us. They're right here the whole time. You see, when we need God the most, that is the easiest time to be distracted by everything that is going on around us. But we need to ask God to open our eyes, to lead us through his word, and to grow our faith. You see, Hagar, she almost missed what was right in front of her. But let us not be like Hagar. And I'll close with this verse. Matthew 6 and chapter 33 says, or Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these things shall be added unto you. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.